Hi, this is Chris Sorensen. Welcome to Brookville Road Community Church Podcast. If you haven't done so already, please take a moment to check out our website at brookvilleroad.cc for all the latest information about what's going on at Community Church. I hope the following message inspires you to take your next step in becoming a wholehearted follower of Jesus Christ. Enjoy. Please turn to your Bibles to Judges chapter 15. Today we're going to be looking at a section in the life of Samson. But uh, before we get to that, I, I want to I tell you a story and I, I want to review some of the things that we talked about last week. I, I'll start the story by showing you a picture. Uh, all right, I, this picture was taken on March 10th, 2001. And I remember that exact day with a lot of clarity because that was the day that I got engaged to my girlfriend, Becky Stevens, who is now my wife. And this was at the end of the day. We, uh, it, it was a Saturday. And the day actually started down at the other end of the building in the dome. Uh, Becky was still in college at Taylor University. And I uh, was uh, the children's pastor here at the church. And so we were down in the dome. And I surprised Becky. And I proposed to her. And she said yes. And then we got in the car and I said, I have this whole day planned out, but I, I want to surprise you. So we put on a blindfold. So she put on a blindfold and then I drove her over uh, to Mount Comfort Airport where I met up with our friends, David and Leslie Rugsager. And I said, we're going to fly to Chicago. And David uh, is a pilot. And I, I told Becky, we had all these things planned out, uh, these activities that we're going to do while we're there. And she was excited. And so we got in the plane, uh, this, that small plane right there, and, and we headed out into the sky. And I'll come back to this story in a minute, but I just want to pause for a moment to review things that I talked about last week and kind of share the relevance of why that picture in this story makes sense within this sermon and within this series. Now, last week, we started a series called Ready for Takeoff. And during my message, if you were here last week, I hope you'll remember a term that I introduced called spatial disorientation. And just to remind you, spatial disorientation is what happens when what a pilot sees or thinks they see doesn't match up with reality, that what they feel doesn't match up with reality. And I talked about last week that I think there's a parallel to spatial disorientation in the spiritual world, because in our lives, there are moments where as we're flying the plane that is our life, what we believe about God doesn't always match up with what we're feeling or experiencing in the world around us. Now, last week, we talked about the idea that when pilots fly airplanes, there are two sets of rules for flying aircraft. There's VFR, that stands for visual flight rules, and then there's IFR, and that stands for instrument flight rules. VFR is the way that pilots fly when the weather is good. In VFR, although the pilot does have instruments uh, on their dashboard that tell them things like the plane's altitude and, and airspeed, that their main reference points, as the, the name implies, visual, their main reference points are you know, the things that they can see. In contrast to visual reference rules, when, when a pilot is flying using instrument flight rules, their usual reference points to help stay oriented are gone. In IFR, the pilot can't see where he or she is going, at least not with their eyes. So the only way to fly safely in conditions where their visual references are, are either lost or at least obscured is to train yourself to keep your eyes fixed on the plane's instruments. Spatial disorientation means that for a pilot, they can't trust their senses, but they have to trust their electronic instruments, right? Their senses might lie to them, but their electro the electronic instruments on their plane won't. 
When training new pilots, flight instructors tell them that when you find yourself in a place of spatial disorientation, rely on your instruments. They say things like, you can't trust your feelings, you must trust your instruments. Now, in many ways, I think the principles of IFR and training yourself to trust your instruments rather than your feelings, I think this also applies to the Christian life. Because while there are some times where uh, the Christian life all seems to make sense, in a sense we're flying VFR and we can see what's happening, we can see what's coming, and it all kind of makes sense. But there are times where, as it were, we're flying through a fog and things do not make sense and we can't easily see where up and down is and left or right. Our normal points of reference become obscured and we begin to struggle. Last week, we talked about the fact that as followers of Jesus, God has given us an instrument panel that we need to trust. And part of that instrument panel includes the fact that God has given us his word. He's given us the Bible and he's given us the Holy Spirit so we can understand his word. When times are tough and what we believe about God doesn't seem to match up with what we're feeling or experiencing, we need to remember that we need to trust God's word and not our feelings. That's why when we talk about God time here at Brookville Road, that's so important. As a church, we say all of us need to spend at least 15 minutes every day in God's word and in prayer. Our God time is important because it helps us reorient in the midst of difficult experiences. And when we feel like we don't know what to do, God is able to show us through his word. Now, I want to go back to the story I was telling you earlier about Becky and me. And we've already discussed what happens when pilots experience spatial disorientation and they have to trust the instruments on their dashboard or else there can be fatal consequences. But I want you to think about this. Pilots in airplanes aren't the only people experiencing spatial disorientation, right? I mean, their passengers also can experience spatial disorientation. But what happens when passengers, what they see and what they feel doesn't match up? To to be a little bit more exact, what happens... When I am a passenger in an airplane, in the back row of a four-seat airplane, next to my beautiful brand-new fiancé, and suddenly what I'm beginning to feel and what I'm seeing and feeling don't match up, what happens then? I I leaned over to Becky and I said to her, I think I'm going to be sick. (laughs) And Becky responded with all the grace and compassion of a woman who has not thrown up since she was seven years old and kind of has a phobia when it comes to vomit. She said, You are not allowed to throw up. No, no, you've got to get it together. You can't do it. Sadly, Becky was wrong. I could do it, and I did do it, and I did it multiple times over the next 20 minutes into my air sickness bag. And I have to say, I'm really grateful for that air sickness bag, right? Like, because this is a small, contained space. And it's a good thing that I liked that air sickness bag because since we were in a very small, small airplane, there was no place like trash can for the air sickness bag, the full air sickness bag to go. So I got to hold that really nice, great air sickness bag, again, that was full until we landed at Mix Field in Chicago. And let me tell you, if you've never been in that situation, nothing enhances the romance of getting engaged. (laughs) Quite like a full air sickness bag. Some of you might associate the special day of your engagement with the smell of like flowers or wine or I I don't know. For me and Becky, our engagement reminds us of a different aroma. (laughs) And speaking of Becky, she hates that story. (laughs) But I'm not quite sure how to put this, but 
She's not here this weekend. Um, <laughs> she's actually in Colorado at her sister's birthday party. So if we could just keep this between us, that would, that would be great. <laughs> but anyway, I tell that story because on some level, I, I showed you that picture and that picture is of, you know, two people who are smiling and happy and we're in the back of the airplane and it looks like everything is great and everything was great. But about 20 minutes later, it was not all great, right? I was about to get sick in a very small, confined environment. If you just saw the picture, you'd think everything was fine, but things were not fine in my body in that moment. I just didn't know it yet. And there are times, of course, when the disconnect, the discrepancy between what we see and what we're feeling on the inside, it doesn't really make all that big of a deal over the long haul, right? Just because I got sick on the day that we got engaged hasn't really made a big difference in the quality of our marriage. But sometimes the disconnect between what people see on the outside and what's going on in the inside, it can have very, very serious negative effects in the future. For instance, in the story of Samson, God has sent him to be the judge or the leader for the people of Israel and to deliver them from the hands of the Philistines. So that's Samson's mission. That's his job. And on the outside, if people are just looking at the picture, for most of Samson's ministry, things look good. Yeah, he's kind of crazy and erratic, and he's doing some things that are wrong. But like when it comes to the mission, when it comes to his calling to you know, push back on the Philistines and help prop up the Israelites, things are going well. But even though he has this big calling and the picture looks good on the outside, that big calling is being built on a very weak, weak foundation. It keeps getting smaller and smaller. And it's going to end up leading to the destruction of Samson. Now, we could do an entire series on the life of Samson, but what we're just going to do is focus on a story that begins at the end of chapter 15. Now, to set this up, we're going to look at the last verse uh, of chapter 15, but to just tell you what comes before it, Samson has just killed a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. It just happened to be there, right? And they were just happened to come at him. And then that kind of tells you about Samson's life. Not a lot of forethought, not a lot of planning, right? But also a lot of strength and power. Now, the reason that they had come against him was because of a series of wild and impulsive decisions that Samson had made regarding his, surrounding his marriage to a Philistine woman, right? Like, that's, that's what leads before this. But Samson ultimately triumphs over these Philistines, and in verse 20, there's kind of just this afterthought that sort of describes what has happened in his life and ministry. It says, Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. Now, if I was to ask you to describe, like if you're familiar, if you've grown up in the church world and you know the stories of Samson, if I was to ask you to tell me what are some of the biggest moments in the life of Samson, I think a lot of us would have a tendency to just gloss right over this verse. It's not as exciting. And yet, it is pretty remarkable because it might represent the high point of Samson's entire ministry. Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. Despite all of his imperfections, despite all of his sin, God used Samson to accomplish his purposes for the people of Israel against the Philistines. Samson's life seems to be proof of Martin Luther's quote, God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. I love those words. God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. And aren't you grateful for that truth? 
that God can draw straight lines with crooked sticks like me and you. For 20 years, God was able to use Samson. Now, we don't know all the details, but somehow, even though he did lots of wrong things, Samson was faithful enough to God where for 20 years, God was able to use him as a leader for his people. And I want you to remember those 20 years of faithfulness because as we go through Judges 16, the story is going to end up with Samson in shackles. His eyes are going to be gouged out by the Philistines, and he's going to end up being set up in a position where he's a kind of laughing stock for all of his enemies to make fun of. And as we see how far Samson falls, I think it is natural for us to ask the question, how did this happen? How did a guy with so much ability and so much potential end up in the chains of his enemies? How did Samson mess up his life this badly? And of course, the answer is, he didn't do it all at once. As we go through the story of Samson in chapter 16, I'm reminded of an interchange in Ernest Hemingway's novel, The Sun Also Rises, where one character asks another character, how did you go bankrupt? And the second character responds, in two ways, gradually, then suddenly. Gradually, then suddenly. I think that's a pretty good description of Samson's downfall. And of course, the same thing is true for so many people today. I don't think anybody sets out to try and mess up their lives, but over time, gradually, it happens. I'm sure it's happened to people in this room. Maybe if we're just being very transparent, maybe it's happening right now to some people in this room. We make little compromises here and small decisions over there, and we begin to walk step by step by step away from the path that God has called us to live on. And we almost never do it all at once, but that's not how it happens. How does it happen? In two ways, gradually, then suddenly. Now, to illustrate this, process of the downfall of Samson, we're going to use some very large Jenga pieces. You got it, Joel. Thank you. <laughs> Appreciate that. All right. Now, if you've never played Jenga, the goal of the game of Jenga is to pull out pieces of the tower and, you know, basically you're playing against a competitor and you just keep pulling out pieces until eventually the tower falls down. And the goal is to not be the last person who plays that makes the structure fall down. As we see in the story of Samson, he's going to make choices, and pieces of the tower are going to get pulled out one by one. And as that happens, the tower is going to progressively get weaker and weaker. But here's the thing. Samson's a lot like us. Most of us, we just think, well, as long as the tower is still standing, I'm okay. Yeah, I mean, like... The picture, the picture looks good because the tower is still standing. Yeah, maybe on the inside, behind the scenes, some things are deteriorating. But as long as it's still upright, we think we're okay. And in Samson's life, the tower doesn't fall down right away. It doesn't fall down all at once. It's a gradual process. But in a sense, it's just a matter of time before gradually turns into suddenly. Look at the start of Judges chapter 16. Now, again, this is coming right on the heels of Samson having been faithful for 20 years of ministry. And then in verse 1, chapter 16, we read, 
One day, Samson went to Gaza, where he saw a prostitute. He went in to spend the night with her. The people of Gaza were told, Samson is here. So they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the city gate. They made no move during the night, saying, at dawn, we'll kill him. Now, before we see what happens to Samson, I want you to notice something that isn't immediately obvious to us as modern readers, but I think would have really stood out right away to the first readers of the book of Judges. And that is, Gaza is a Philistine city. It's one of the major Philistine cities. And it's some distance from Israel. Samson is the leader of the people of Israel. And so it's a natural question. What is he doing in Gaza? Scholars tell us that depending on where Samson was when he started, if we look at uh, earlier sections in the book of Judges that describe where Samson was born and where he lived and where he was doing things, he had to walk at least 20, maybe 25, even 30 miles to get to Gaza. And and I was just thinking about this. uh, To go 30 miles is is roughly 60,000 steps. Right? So he's going to walk step by step by step, 60,000 steps until he gets to Gaza. And if we're going to track the downfall of Samson, we need to see that Samson was willing to risk 20 years of faithful ministry, of being the leader of Israel, because he could not control his sexual desires. He couldn't manage his sexual desires for one night. Pastor Craig Rochelle has written about Samson and asked, who would be so stupid to risk so much for so little. He goes on, but the answer is people do it every single day, don't they? All of the time. They risk a good marriage, good integrity, good ministry, a good career, all of these good things, and they'll risk it for a quick sexual hit, for a quick high, for a quick experience. Who would risk so much for so little? Well, the problem is people do it all the time. Step By step, by step, we rock in the wrong direction. We look at the tower of our life and we think, oh, well, it's just a compromise here. It's not that big a deal over here. Like, it's just one block. It's just one choice. It's just one decision. But the thing is, how does a tower fall? Gradually, then suddenly. If we go back to the world of aviation and flying a plane, when the weather is bad or if visibility is poor, pilots have to fly using instrument flight rules. They are trained that when, they don't, when what they feel doesn't match up with what the instruments say, they're supposed to trust the instruments. But what happens if a pilot, maybe let's just say an experienced pilot, is flying along and they're using IFR and in the midst of, you know, Difficult conditions, they have this sense that something is happening in the plane, but it doesn't correspond with what the instrument panel is telling them. What if the pilot just says, you know what? I've been a pilot for a long time. I think this instrument panel must be faulty. It must be broken. I'm just going to go with my gut on this. I'm not going to believe what the instruments are telling me. But this is one of the reasons that the FAA requires that almost all aircraft built for IFR flying have redundant instrumentation in the cockpit. If a pilot is tempted to think that one of their instruments isn't working, there are backups of that instrument for them to consult. 
The idea is that if all of your instruments are telling you the same thing, it's probably not your instruments that are broken. It's probably not your instruments that are mistaken. You, you, the pilot, you are mistaken. You are wrong. Don't trust your feelings. Trust your instruments. And that's not just true for pilots in airplanes. It's true for you and for me. And this is why godly friends are such an important part of the Christian life. Christian community is part of the instrument panel that God has given us for navigating our everyday lives. Yes, like the primary way that God is going to speak to us is because he's given us his word and he's given us his spirit so that we can understand his word. But I just want you to think about this. At the beginning of the book of Genesis, Adam, you could say, had perfect access to God's word, right? He didn't have a book, but he had God himself. There was no sin in the world, and so if Adam didn't understand some instructions God had given him, all he had to do was ask God, and God would give him the words that he needed. But even though there was no sin and there was no like, confusion between what God's word was and what Adam was understanding, despite all of that, God recognized that something was missing in Adam's life. He had God's word, but God said, it is not good for Adam to be alone. And it isn't good for us to be alone today. We all need people who can speak into our lives and tell us the truth about what's going on. And we need to be able to do the same for other people. Earlier, I talked about the importance of God time at BRCC. And that is important. But we also need group time. We need to spend time with other people who are on the same journey that we are as we seek to become wholehearted followers of Jesus. As Samson was walking 60,000 steps to Gaza, at any point in time, he could have, he should have just stopped and said, what am I doing? Why am I risking so much for so little? Why am I walking away from God, stepping away from God, and risking my own destruction? But apparently, Samson never asked that kind of question. Samson had God's word. It wasn't as, as, as if he was confused about God's moral standards. He knew it was wrong to go to a prostitute. Perhaps one of the reasons he's not in Israel, he's going into Philistine territory, is he's trying to keep it a secret from the other Israelites. I, I don't know. But he kept walking. And he was so consumed with what he wanted and his own desires and his own feelings, he could not see that his plane was headed for a crash. And what Samson desperately needed was a godly friend to come alongside of him and say, Samson, don't do it. What are you thinking? Like, you know what God's word says. And, and maybe, I don't know, you're lonely because the marriage with the Philistine woman at the beginning, it didn't work out. Or, or, or maybe you're just feeling consumed with, with desire. I, I don't know what it is. But Samson, this is not the path. You don't want to walk over in this direction. This is a mistake. Don't go there. But of course, you know, Samson didn't have anybody like that in his life. Or if he did... He wasn't willing to listen to them. At this time, I just want to pause for a moment and put a plug in for our church's small group ministry because we do need people who can speak into our lives. During 
This summer, the majority of our church's small groups and Bible studies are taking a break as people are traveling during the summer or doing different things. But in August, Pastor Paul and our small groups team are going to be signing people up for groups that will actually get going in September. If you haven't already spoken with Pastor Paul or one of our other staff members, you know you should do that between now and then. Uh, even today, uh, Trey is going to be uh, in the cafe at, at Paul's uh, next step table, and he, he can help you get connected with one of the groups that are going to get started this fall. But here's the thing. When we're flying through tough times, we all need people who can come alongside us and say, I, I know it might be hard to see what straight and level looks like right now, but, but, but I'm going to pray for you, and I'm going to encourage you, and, and this is the way you need to go. We, we all need friends like that. People who can help us identify what following Jesus looks like when we're confused or we don't know what to do. Now, as I talk about this, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that, you know, the only purpose for godly friendships is for people to hold us accountable. I've been part of groups like that, and they're very, very significant and important. But it isn't just that these friendships are help us uh, from, to keep, help keep us from doing something wrong. There's more to it. One of the key things about godly friendships is that people can encourage us when we're feeling defeated and down. In my own life, I often think about a person in our church who really blessed me in my first year of being children's pastor here at BRCC. I was doing, getting ready in the weeks leading up to my very first vacation Bible school here at the church as, as the pastor. And in those weeks leading up to that moment, I made a decision that was the wrong decision, and it really, really upset one of my key volunteers who was in our VBS ministry. And I just want to be clear, it wasn't anything sinful that I did. I just made a bad judgment call. But it really, really upset this person. And it wasn't just that they were upset and they shared that they were upset with me and they were angry and disappointed with me. They began telling other people in our ministry and even outside of our ministry how much of a mistake I had made and how upset they were with me. Now, again, this is my first year as the children's pastor. Now, I didn't think that I was going to get fired because of this mistake that I had made, but I'll be honest, I really wasn't completely sure. This person who was upset with me was very influential. But during that time of discouragement, a woman in our church came alongside me and told me that it was going to be okay. She told me that she believed in me and that she thought I had what it took to be a good pastor. She also said that she would go to the person who was upset and would talk to them and get them to calm down. And that's what happened? She did what she said, and the person did calm down. That was over 20 years ago, but I still remember how helpless I felt when it th seemed like things were going badly all around me. In that season, I felt like a failure. If I was just to go back to last week's message and talk about those 10 spies and their perception of the promised land, when I looked at the giants of criticism and my own mistakes, I felt like a grasshopper. And I didn't see a way forward. But when this lady, who at the time, I, I knew her, but I wasn't that close to her. Since she and I have become friends, and she's very important to me. But at the time, she just saw someone who was hurting and was discouraged. And she spoke into my life. I felt like the plane of my leadership at BRCC was in a nosedive. And I, I didn't know how to pull up. I, I didn't know how to get out of that situation. But when she spoke into my life, it was like an instrument, part of the instrument panel on the dashboard of, of my, my life. It just, it like came alive. And, and I got a message, don't panic. It's going to be okay. 
And we all need people like that in our lives who can help us when we're feeling overwhelmed. Sometimes as we get ready to make a decision and we're, we're, we're ready to panic and we're like, I, I'll, I'll make a compromise here because, oh my, like, it'll be okay. I, I have to do this because of what's going on around me. And someone can lovingly come to us and just say, hey, don't do that. And, and in fact, let, let's put that piece back, right? Like, we need godly friendships where people can speak into our life. That's the power of godly community. Of course, as we already talked about earlier, apparently Samson didn't have anyone like that in his life, and so he kept taking steps in the wrong direction. But here's the amazing thing about the story. If you were just to look at the tower that was Samson's life, at the end of this story, one night with a prostitute in Gaza, it seems like he's trapped. The tower is about to come down. But that's not what happens. Samson gets up and it's like, well, I'll be okay. I'm going to just walk out of this place. I'll just tear the gates off the city, right off, you know, the, the, out of the, right out of the city wall. I'll drag them a great distance. I'm just going to leave this place because I'm strong. I can do whatever I want. Yes, pieces are being taken out of the tower, but it's like, it doesn't matter to Samson because he's still got the power. The tower is still standing. And if anyone came to him and said, what are you doing? What are you thinking? He'd say, it's just one piece. Look, the thing is still upright. I'm doing okay. I'll be fine. But how does a tower like this fall? In two ways, gradually, then suddenly. We're going to see that in this next story in Judges 16. It's probably the most famous story in Samson's life. It's what he's best known for. It's a story of his relationship with Delilah. Now, because it's such a familiar story, we won't go into all the details, but suffice to say, Delilah is bad news, and she takes a bribe from the Philistine leaders to betray Samson. And it's not just one time. It's not even just two times. She does it three times. But Samson comes, comes, keeps taking her back. He's like, it doesn't matter. As long as the tower is still standing, I can get away with it. It's not that big a deal. And you know what? The first time, it isn't a big deal. And the second time, it doesn't seem to be that big a deal. But on this third time, he's confessed to her that one of the secrets of his strength is his hair. And if his hair is cut, he will lose his power. And so Delilah, while Samson is sleeping, shaves his head, which leads to two things. One, Samson ends up looking a lot more like me. <laughs> and two, and far more importantly, he loses his supernatural strength. That haircut was the final violation of the Nazarite vow that God had told Samson's parents that Samson needed to follow. Before Samson was even born, God had come to his parents and said, this is the way he needs to go. This is the way he needs to leave. Here in Judges 16, Samson's power is gone. But what makes this story so tragic is that as he wakes up, he does not even realize what has happened. Just look at verses 20 and 21 with me. Then Delilah called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. 
He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. Remember, I told you, this was not the first time Delilah had done this sort of thing to him. This is the third time. So he thinks, I'll just go out like I did before and shake myself free. But then these words. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and took him down to Gaza, binding him with bronze shackles. They set him to grinding grain in the prison. Those are some very sad words. And if you look at verse 21, we see that once again, Samson is in Gaza, just like he was at the start of chapter 16. But whereas the last time he was able to kind of get out of the situation because he was in control, this time, this time he, he's a prisoner. He's in shackles. His eyes are mutilated, gouged out. He's going to end up becoming, you know, the butt of the joke for all of the Philistines to mock and support, you know, scorn and contempt upon. But even though those words in verse 21 are sad, to me, the saddest words in all of the book of Judges, I would say maybe the saddest words in the whole Old Testament are those words in verse 20, but he did not know the Lord had left him. But he did not know the Lord had left him. Those are words I would never want to be said about me. And as one of your pastors, I would never want them to be said about you. She did not know the Lord had left her. He did not know that the Lord had left him. Samson thought that as long as the tower was still standing, he was okay. What's interesting is that with each successive piece that was pulled out of the tower, it wasn't as if his strength got just a little bit weaker. No. He was good when it came to power all the way to the end. But, but how does a tower like this fall? Well, it's gradually before it's suddenly. And so Samson, as he's facing these sorts of moments in his life, he's like, it's just one piece. It's just one compromise. How many people even know about it? It's not that big a deal. Look, look at all the successes that I'm having. I'm still accomplishing all that God has for me to accomplish. But, you know, just one choice here, one choice there. And even at the end, if you had asked Samson, like, is getting your hair cut, like, the worst thing that you've done? Like, compared to all the other choices that you've made? I think he would have said, well, no. I mean, this guy has been shacking up with prostitutes. He's been you know, living a very reckless life. He was supposed to avoid alcohol. He hasn't been doing that. Like, he, he makes decisions that end up blowing back on the Israelites. And even though he's supposed to be their protector, his choices end up hurting them. But, like, no, this, this was not the worst thing that he ever did. But it was the final thing that he did that resulted 
in the tower that was his life falling down. You see, there is this temptation that we have to think, as long as the tower is still upright, I can keep pulling out pieces and I'm going to be okay. But eventually a, a moment comes where we, we can't keep getting away with it. How does a tower fall? It falls not just with one choice. It falls gradually and then suddenly. And I think that as I talk about the story of Samson, some of you, you know what I'm talking about. Just like Samson, you've justified that as long as your tower was standing, you were okay. And maybe other people didn't know about the choices you were making or the compromises that you were making or the, the, the sins that you were committing or, or whatever it was. But, but if anybody had ever come to you, you just would have said, but look, the tower, it's still up. The picture, it still looks good. And you know what? The picture does look good right up into the moment where it's not good anymore. Just remember, Samson didn't lose his character all at once. Before it happened suddenly, it happened gradually. He served God for 20 years, but he kept stepping farther and farther and farther and farther away from God until eventually he reached a point where he did not know the Lord had left him. As we come to the end of my message today, I just want to ask everyone a question. Where are you stepping away from God? I don't know if you were at step one or step two or a hundred or you're all the way over here in the tens of thousands. But, but where are you stepping away from God? Maybe for you, it's just something as simple as this. You're a Christian, but, but you really never spend any time in God's word. I mean, we talk about the importance of God time and you, you have a Bible, but you basically never open your Bible. And the only time you ever pray is when things are so desperate that you have nowhere else to turn. Maybe you're just not spending any time with God. Or maybe for you, the issue is that you don't have any Christian friends. You don't have any godly encouragement in your life. And when I was talking about the significance and the importance of group time, you were like, I get it, but I'm okay with the friends that I have. They make me feel good about myself. And, and I can understand that perspective, but here's the thing. If you're a follower of Jesus, you need Christian friends who are gonna encourage you. Because if you have a true Christian friend, their goal for you yeah, they love you and they want to bless you. But their goal for you is not that you would live your life in such a way that you would feel good about you. Their goal for your life is that you would live your life in such a way that God would feel good about you. And so maybe that's what you're lacking. 
Other people might be looking at your life and it looks like the tower is still intact and so they think they're fine, that you are fine. But when you look kind of behind the scenes on the inside, you know that some pieces have been pulled out of the tower. I don't, I don't know what those are. Maybe if you're a student, maybe you've been cheating on tests or cheating in school in some way. Maybe if you're an adult, you've been cheating on your taxes. Is your life consumed with greed or with lust? Is there a spirit of entitlement upon you or maybe a a spirit of self-harm? Have you been giving up on some things that God wants you to stay working on? You need to stay in that fight? Or are you starting something that God's like, I don't want you to be a part of that? Is your life consumed with drugs or alcohol or pornography? Are you an honest and trustworthy person? Are you being faithful to your spouse? Are you being faithful to Jesus? I don't know where you are right now in your life. I don't know where you've been stepping away from God. I don't know how far along you are. Step one, step two, 500. Maybe you're all the way over here at step 60,000. You're right outside of Gaza. And maybe the first time you came here, it seemed like nothing happened, so you can come back. But the second time Samson came to Gaza, he was in a very different situation. So I don't know where you are if you've been walking away from God, stepping away from God. I don't know where you are. But I do know that wherever you are, I know what you need to do. I know what you need to do. You need to turn around and start walking back towards God. In the Bible, we call that repentance. We need to repent. And it's not just feeling sorry for the things that you've done. You need to start walking back towards God, walking in the opposite direction. And it didn't take you just one day to get all the way over here. And you're not going to be able to get back here all at once either. But I can promise you this, God wants to redeem your story. In the story of Samson's life, it comes to the end and he prays a simple prayer. And despite all that he had done, God shows up and he redeems Samson's story. One day, when the New Testament was being written, Samson would show up in Hebrews 11 in the hall of faith, right? So so God can work with crooked sticks. He can draw straight lines with people like us. But here's the thing. If God could redeem the story of someone like Samson, you can be sure that God can redeem your story and my story. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for my friends who are in this room and who are watching online that if they were feeling some sort of godly conviction about where they've been walking away from you, stepping away from you, where they've been pulling out pieces of their tower and feeling like it must be okay because the tower hasn't fallen down yet. Lord, I pray that by your spirit, you would show them what it looks like to repent, what it looks like to turn and walk in the opposite direction, to say, I'm not gonna fly based on how I feel. I'm gonna go on the instrument panel that God has given me. I'm gonna do what it says in God's word. And when I don't feel like doing what it says in God's word, I'm gonna reach out to friends, other people within the body of Christ who can encourage me. 
I need people in the family of God who can help me see what straight and level looks like so I can come back, walk back to the one who made me, to my heavenly father. And Lord, we know what will happen if that happens, if they start walking back. We know in the story of the prodigal son that a son who has squandered his life on wild living returns to his father and instead of judgment, he is welcomed home with open arms because you are a God of second and third and fourth and many, many, many chances. You love us, your sons and daughters. And so Lord, I pray for anyone who's here who feels like that's where I am right now. I'm like Samson, I'm headed towards Gaza or I live in Gaza. I pray, Lord, that they would be willing to turn around and start walking home to the God who made them and who loves them. Lord, we want to see you redeem their story. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love for you to join us at one of our weekend worship services. For service times and information about BRCC, be sure to check out brookvilleroad.cc. God bless you.